I love dogs. I love dogs, too. Glad we're all on the same page. Five, four, three, two, one. Welcome to the Sarah Andreco Show. All right. So with me today is Dr. Ashley Bourgeois. Wait a minute. I didn't get that right. That's okay. <laughs> Bourgeois. Yeah. Bourgeois. That's it. Dr. Ashley Bourgeois with this most fantastic fancy last name that I cannot <laughs> pronounce to save my life. Um, but anyhow, Ashley is a board certified veterinary dermatologist. And I'm really excited about this one because this is not my field. And I feel like I'm going to learn a ton. And I think all of the listeners will today as well. Um, and I, dermatology is so funny because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like it's one of those subjects that's ooh and ah, but it's like you and ah. So people are either really into it and they're like, ooh, crusty, gooey, or they're like, oh my God, I can't. You know, I don't feel like there's much middle ground. It's kind of a love-hate. Do you find the same? Yeah, I think I do. And it's really interesting because the things that people will think are really gross when they see one of our patients, like I'll walk by, you know, some emergency case. I'm like, no, that's gross. Like this is not that <laughs> gross. But I think you're right. I, you know, when I lecture and do CE for general practitioners, it's either people come up and, you know, I call them like, we're all derm nerds. It's like, they're so excited and they love the pictures or people are like hard pass. Like I do not need to <laughs> do anything with skin. But the hard thing is in general practice, it's a really large chunk of what veterinarians are doing. Yeah. I think there's a, a, so much going on, especially with this, you know, rise in allergies and all these different reactions to things. And um, yeah, just some of the primary care practices that I've done some relief work in and out of, I, I, I feel the same. I feel like there's such a rise in dermatological issues. And sometimes it seems like people are really tentative or hesitant to really kind of take a deep dive into dermatology. So, um, and that's one of the things that you do kind of with your podcast and your Instagram page. I love your Instagram page. I read it all the time um, because there's so much really good information and knowledge packed in there, especially for practitioners in particular. Um, to kind of help them through some of these processes. You had one, I think it was yesterday, about a dog with pemphigus where you're talking about punch biopsies and you know, just giving really good information for practitioners about multiple sites and include the flakes and all the kind of gross stuff and the crusties in there too. So um, tell me a little bit too about your line of work as far as getting your education out there, since you are board certified, to other hospitals, other veterinarians to make them more kind of comfortable in this field. Sure. And it means a lot that you even look at the content because if, you know, people aren't into dermatology or it's not really their thing, it can be a lot. But essentially like where the derm vet kind of came from was I have always loved lecturing, going to conferences. I've loved kind of teaching my specialty because obviously it's something I'm really passionate about, but it really kind of came to fruition a couple years ago after I had my second child. Um, though I love to travel, I love to go out and lecture and do these things. It's kind of part of my career. Um, you know, having two kids and coming to the realization that I was busier than ever, <laughs> I knew not everyone could go do those things. And I'd have people reach out to me and say, oh man, I really want to go to this conference. I really want to hear you speak. But, you know, for various reasons, this is pre-pandemic, um, it wasn't always an option time-wise, financially. So I kind of started thinking, what, what could I do, very similar to you, to get information out there that's tangible, that's digestible, that um, people can access in various different points of their life? 
they're going on a commute to work, they have 30 minutes, they would love to learn a little tidbit of what they could do in the practice a bit better. Um, so that's kind of where it all came. Since dermatology is so visual, social media um, just started kind of making sense because I could put cases up um, and clients really love it because they get really excited when I want to put their before and after picture mm -hmm. up of their pet because they've worked so hard to get yeah. to that point. Um, and then the podcast again was just the same thing of what's another way I can get information out there that makes it um, just really easy to listen to whether someone's washing dishes, whether they're on a walk. Um, so that's kind of where it all came about was just giving various sources of ways to learn dermatology. Well, I like that it's very digestible chunks too, you know, with, with kind of what you're mentioning about having time constraints and other interests and things like that. Sometimes it's hard to, to separate the time to go to a full conference, you know, whereas if you are, you're posting really good content on Instagram with tips and information on the podcast, it's smaller portions and easier to digest in kind of chunks and not feel so overwhelmed with as much information all at once to where, you know, you have to go back and read your notes. You know, you have to reread everything that was presented in a conference or a full two hour lecture. So that's the other thing that I like about it too, is that it just, it presents it in a way that you can be like, oh yeah, that is something that I could add to my practice to kind of improve what I'm doing. Or, oh, I never even thought about that. Or, you know, just easy, um, you know, bits and pieces here and there that can, can really benefit practice overall. Yeah. And I think the other nice thing too, is I, I'm guilty as charged going to a lecture, being excited. And then all of a sudden your mind wanders. <laughs> right. And then you're kind of like, I didn't pay attention like for the last 10 minutes and you get to some part in the lecture, you're like, oh, I really wish I would have been paying attention. So having kind of this evergreen content that just kind of lives on, right? Like through podcasts and social media is nice because, you know, when people ask me, well, what about this? I can direct them to an episode and then mm -hmm. they can listen over and over again if they really need that repetition. Definitely. Yeah. So uh, let's talk about some of your tips, some of your do's and don'ts. So we're looking at both veterinarians and mostly technicians because a lot of times it's the technicians and the nurses that are prepping so that you guys can read and diagnose when it comes to things like skin smears and cytologies and things like that. So um, I would love to go over kind of some of your just quick rundown of best practices when it comes to collecting samples. And I'm looking at samples, we'll start with like non-anesthetic procedures. So, you know, nothing that requires anything too in-depth. The animal's still very much awake and mobile, and we're just collecting some skin samples to read under the microscope. So looking at things like differential stains, what are some of your common practices? Because there's a whole bunch of debate, practice to practice to practice, as to how to do these, what's right, what's not, and even vet to vet, they all have their own different preferences. Mm -hmm. But from your perspective, let's think about some of those cytologies and impression smears. Yeah, sure. So one thing I will say is there is no exact way. I think that's what people get really bothered by is, you know, so I'm very vocal about this on my social media. I am not a taper. I don't do, I don't have <laughs> tape, neither myself or the other dermatologists I work with tape prep. There oh. are amazing dermatologists that tape prep. So what I always kind of stop and tell people who are trying to figure out how they want to do cytology is find what works for you and what you're comfortable with. You don't have to do every single form of collecting cytology. You can really feel what works for you and what you feel like you get the best sample from. So I do a lot of direct impression smears. Um, and for collecting it, my kind of biggest 
piece of advice is be aggressive. I think sometimes that's the big mistake I see is people just kind of pat like the slide on the pet or they don't really take the edge of the slide and get under the crust or disrupt that top layer of the epidermis. So it's really hard because people will say, well, when do you decide to treat systemically and when don't you? What quantity of organisms, you know, do you decide to treat? And that's a really tough question because you could collect a sample of someone who doesn't do skin disease very often or is just learning cytology, say a new grad. I've only done skin now for a decade, which is crazy to me. <laughs> um, so I might get a lot more on my slide than you because I'm. this is all I do. I'm super comfortable with it and I'm probably more aggressive. So it's really hard to quantify like, you know, when do you treat and when don't you? So you have to take everything into consideration. What does the pet look like? What is the owner able to do? Um, so you being aggressive, I think, is a, in, you know, within reason, um, is a really good piece of advice. Getting under the crust, getting under the epidermis. Um, but I also think a really good piece of advice for cytology is practice. Like practice, mm. practice, practice. So I feel comfortable with a moving and grooving dog getting a paw cytology because I have so much practice at doing it. You know, if you are in the general practice, have your technicians just practice collecting cytology on a dog who's anesthetized for a spay. Like you can just run it. You don't have to charge the client for it. Um, you don't even have to stain it, but just practice the technique of a still animal or a really good pet. Like have people practice on a very cooperative pet who needs a cytology. It's just like anything else. The more you practice that, then the better you'll feel when you get to something like a dog who, you know, is aggressive or is just really a two-year-old lab that won't sit still. The other form of cytology I think that's very underused and I've been trying to push on my platform is the claw fold cytology. So that's taking something simple like a toothpick is predominantly what I use and actually putting it in the space between the claw fold and the claw itself because you will be amazed how many organisms you can find. Mm. So even if a pet looks pretty good, if they're paw licking and chewing, um, I'm probably checking a clawful cytology because I have oftentimes found malassezia or bacteria that was contributing to that. And if I don't find that in the claw fold and it sits there and festers, that pet doesn't get better. Excellent. So you just kind of roll that out from your toothpick just like you would any other... Yeah, so I take the toothpick and I basically kind of scrape it in the claw fold, which honestly most pets are very tolerant mm -hmm. of. And then I take the toothpick and just like you would with like an ear sample, I kind of roll it onto a slide and then we just stain that. To kind of get to your little question about staining, mm -hmm. I think people overthink technique a lot. <laughs> I will be so honest. Like you'll you'll see things, right? Like five to eight dips, a minute in each dip. I always joke when I stain a slide, it's like, how much in a hurry am I? And how much am I talking to my text? Like I don't count it out. It really doesn't take that long. That's the nice thing about diff quick. So I kind of like you know, kind of move it up and down. And as I'm chatting with my text and then I blot it in between each stain, which is important because you don't want to dilute the stains out. And then I kind of swirl it around in the next one as I'm gabbing. So it really doesn't take as long as people think. Mm -hmm. um, I always say like maybe five to eight dips is a good rule of thumb if you really need something to hang on to. But I am not meticulous at all when I stain a slide. Um, you know, I just kind of 
I'm a talker, so I just kind of talk and stain <laughs> and I'm not counting it out. Quite the opposite of what I expected. I was ready for the, okay, so you're going to dip 10 times and then it's going to sit there for 20 seconds and then you're going to blah and then you're going to go on to the next one. So. But that's exactly why I like sharing this stuff yes. because you know, this is true. This is real life. Like we are busy. And you know, the nice thing with the slide is I'm staining it while the pet's there. So for some reason I did move too fast or I didn't stain it right. I can always collect another one real quick and restain it. But the real life answer is most of us are just kind of talking and staining. We're not that meticulous. Yeah. That's really good to know that that stuff is going to hang on there. It's not, you know, it's not time specific. You're not having to leave them in each one for 60 seconds or you're going to lose your sample that's on there. So it's good to know that they're, that it's not quite that calculated to get a good sample for the scope. Um, what about heat fixing? What are your, your thoughts on different types of heat fixtures prior to staining? Yeah, that's a great question because I've changed a lot as I've been doing this now for a while. So I used to kind of heat fix anything that didn't, that was a little thicker or goopier. But to be honest, I, I hardly heat fix now mm. personally. And again, it's fine that we're all different and you will find dermatologists that do really do think they should heat fix things more often. Um, I would say I really only heat fix like maybe very nasty, purulent, thick ear discharge. Okay. Because most of the time when I'm collecting an impression smear of the skin, um, just based on my comfort with it, it's not usually that thick. Like I'll lighten up the pressure if there's a lot of debris so I can kind of control it. Uh, but for maybe like a really nasty, thick, pseudomonas, biofilm, slimy ear, I can still usually get it pretty thinly out onto the slide. But if I feel like I'm just going to lose sample once I start dipping it and say we can't let it air dry because we're in a hurry, then I might heat fix it. But it doesn't take much. We have like a little lighter that sits by, um, sits within our cytology section if we need it. And you really can just put it under for like a couple seconds each side. And then you want to make sure you kind of wipe the soot away from the opposite side of the sample. And then you can stain it like you would a normal slide. Gotcha. So you'll actually fix the side of the sample as well? No, the opposite okay. side. So yeah. So I just like want to be I'm clear holding, on that. Oh, absolutely. Mm -hmm. So if I'm holding it up, I'm going, so my sample's facing up, I'm going to put the lighter underneath where right. the sample is not. And then you'll inevitably get a little bit of black soot debris. And then we wipe that off and we stain. How do you feel about hair dryers? Yeah, some people use them. Again, totally fine. I have been in practices that use them. Um, we don't. We use, um, at the end, once we rinse the slide, after we go through the three stains, we usually just blot it in bibulous paper. Mm -hmm. But I do know dermatologists that do... Um, hair dryers. Uh, you don't, again, you don't need much. It doesn't take much to really get the slide to dry enough to be able to read it. They're pretty small. Um, so just a little bit, since we're covering some disdain topics, um, also kind of another up and down, um, protocol thing that you'll see practice to practice in regards to changing out the stains. Now, obviously you can use a little bit of common sense. The more you're using stains, the more you're going to want to change them out. So they're not, you know, interfering with each and every sample, but do you have a rule of thumb that you use for kind of changing out your stains? Yeah. So first of all, I'll point out that our stains, like I, we're not doing fecals, we're not doing urine. So, you know, certainly separating dirty and clean like stains are important. We, um, if I was doing things like fecal, it'd be all the time. Mm -hmm. But since we're only doing skin and ears, um, honestly, in our practice, depending, I know some practices that do daily, um, 
we meet it depends on how many doctors are in your practice. We only, we have two doctors currently in my practice. We're about to add a third, but we only overlap in the clinic one day a week. So for the most part, compared to where I trained, where there was like eight dermatologists sometimes that are working, they are obviously dipping a lot more slides than we would. So at our practice, we're maybe like once or twice a week, depending on, you know, how busy we are or doctor days. Um, if you're in a really high volume practice with a lot of doctors or you're doing other dirty samples, then I would change it out daily. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, and I will, you know, most practices anyway, most general practices do use the same, um, the same stain for like ears and skin that they are using for fecal samples too. At least right. I've yet to see a private practice in many, many years that separates those two. Do you think that's something that should be kind of become common practice to where you have a separate set for your fecals or you're just changing daily? Yeah. I mean, I would, that's why I kind of point out that's, it's important to look at what you're putting in the slide samples. I, we don't do fecals or else I absolutely would be doing it every day or separating them. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we have any super good literature that like, you know, proves one way or the other on that topic. Um, but if I just, my own mindset would be if we're running things like fecals in the same area, we would definitely need to be changing those out or having separate skin ones from fecal. But since we don't do fecals, then we kind of get away with not having to do that as often. That makes sense. Yeah. Keep everything clean and separate. I don't know how to read a fecal anymore. So that would be... <laughs> it's like riding a bike. You'll be fine. <laughs> oh, maybe. Or blood smears. I don't know. I'm... Yeah, no blood smears. I was a client the other day was asking me about like if we could also do vaccines in a dental. I was like, my dog's going to her own primary vet next month for a dental and uh, vaccines. I don't know how to do any of that You're stuff like, anymore. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so yep. No. But see, pass. that is the beauty of fine tuning, where you get so good at a specific mm -hmm. practice that you know that practice in and out, and everything else does start to kind of fall off by the wayside where you're like, yep, I'm going to leave that to the people that do that every day and know what they're doing on a daily basis when it comes to that, even with preventive medicine. Oh, absolutely. And, and the more you do it, the less shameful you are about yeah. it. Like I used to be like, well, I, I think it's this. And now I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> don't know. Haven't done it in a long time. Well, I do want to touch on prevention a little bit um, there with, with all these different things that are kind of popping up with allergies and just some of the, the spikes in some of the dermatolo dermatological issues that we're seeing across private practices. Um, the, the question always begs, is there something that we can be doing to prevent some of what's going on or some of what we're seeing? Do you think there's any tie into nutrition in particular with some of the fluctuations of these boutique diets and these, you know, different... Um, kind of novel diets that people are putting their dogs on um, that that haven't been very traditional. Do you think that plays a role? And um, what are some other things that we can do to kind of prevent some of the things that we're seeing um, with skin-related issues? Yeah, super fascinating topic and something that I think we're gaining more and more knowledge about. You know, at this point, I don't, again, there's so much we don't know. Like there's so much literature that hasn't been put out there and some of these studies are really hard to do. There have been studies looking at putting young dogs on things like probiotics and what role does, you know, the gut microbiome play with your skin health, just like in people, you know, our overall health can be tied into the health of our gut. So I do think that there's probably some truth to that. Um, you know, when we get to kind of the more alternative diets, it's it's really difficult because I think it depends on the pet. Um, I recently, just yesterday, had a pet I was seeing who was feeding 
um, a raw diet. And interestingly, we had just allergy tested that dog. So it's atopic the month before and it came up very positive for dandelion and the owner asked me because this um very small boutique raw diet she was feeding one of the ingredients was dandelion (laughs) and yeah and she was asking me about it like do you think that matters and i told her again the more you do this the more you're okay to say i don't know i told her i'm i don't know like exactly she's like said that the person who makes the diet said it's a very small amount and said I I can't exactly tell you there's differences in how we absorb things, you know, nutritionally as far as what you're allergic to in your cutaneous absorption, but I would just steer away from it because it's a bulldog. It's already going to have terrible allergic disease. (laughs) It's like, we're already like genetically predisposed to a a problematic situation. (laughs) Yeah. And I was like, and if they're eating the food, could it get like on their lips and then they do absorb it cutaneously? Um, so I think that is the hard thing. There's a lot of misinformation out there. You're starting to find a lot of diets that even if you move away from say food allergic patients and you're starting to just focus even on atopic patients, there's more and more diets coming out by really good companies that do do research, um, that are even looking from the epidermal barrier standpoint of, you know, instead of using like high dose fish oils and having our clients do something else, can we give them a diet that's high in certain fatty acids that have other properties to them that can actually restore their epidermal barrier? So it's a pretty fascinating area, the tie of nutrition to dermatology. And I absolutely think that there is um, some component of that. To what degree or what we'll see in the future, I'm not sure, but I think it's something that we're definitely looking more and more into. Do you see foods in particular that you think are more problematic that that lead to issues or not so much yet? I mean, in general, if you look at the literature um, and some of the studies that come out, you know, dogs like chicken, dairy, beef are always listed as common food allergens. I think cats are often like, you know, chicken, dairy, uh, fish, maybe beef as well. Um, I think it's just because those are very common. Those are common allergens that are in, you know, more of the -the over-the-counter diets. And so it's just something that pets are more exposed to. And so when you have more pets on more of that particular protein, of course, they're going to be higher up. And what we see is the more common allergens. But those are the things that we see cause issues. But, you know, I've, I've had weird allergens, like an owner the other day, swears that her dog's allergic to squash like she's not given it given it the pet flares I have a colleague who's diagnosed you know weird things like that in some of her food allergic pets she gets really into food allergies as a dermatologist so theoretically you know nothing can be ruled out anything's possible but the more common things that we look for are those protein sources that are more rel- like more present in diet so chicken, beef, dairy, things like that. Gotcha. That makes sense. So when it comes to um, treatment, uh, I would love to kind of run through some of your more go-to treatments. I know that's a really broad, vague topic, of course. It's very specific to the organisms that you're finding on the skin and so on and so forth. But um, more in particular, looking at when you're determining what type of treatment. So am I going to take if this is even something that you consider, like a holistic or integrative approach to whatever it is. So I look at nutrition as something like that. Um, Or am I looking at steroids, not using steroids, kind of when to, when not to versus kind of two of those different 
treatment styles or types? Like, how are you going to attack this? Yeah. So you're absolutely right. It, it depends on so many things and there's no really one great answer for every allergic pet. Um, you know, more mild cases, even of environmental allergies, you may be able to just control with things like topical therapy and nutrition. So again, those epidermal barrier diets, um, can be really beneficial in those cases and they may be enough in those sole, uh, mild allergy cases. The ones that tend to walk into my door as a specialist usually aren't the ones that will just get away with that, but they may still be a component of what we do because as we see pets that have to be on lots of different medications, multimodal therapy, you know, everything may help a little bit. So like my own one-year-old lab pit mix is atopic and I have to bathe her once a week. She's currently on Apoquil, but we've also started her on immunotherapy the last few months. And so my hope is in that integrative natural approach that by desensitizing her through things like immunotherapy, I can cause her allergies not to progress and hopefully get to the point where we can use less medication. So I would say in our hands, a more moderate to severe allergy case, the big things that we're doing are always evaluating for infection, and that can be the skin or the ears, because those things like to pop up and cause problems, and you can take a cytology today, and then a week later, things can change. So it's important that we know where the pet is at that point in time, if we do need to address infection. And then it's either topical or systemic, depending on a myriad of, you know, things, uh, what the severity, what the owner can do, what the pet will allow us to do. And then if we're just focusing on antipyritic therapies for, say, a dog we're doing an allergic workup with, then my more common go-tos tend to be Apoquil or Cytopoint because they're well tolerated, they're really fast as far as providing itch relief, but again, I'm controlling the infections while I'm figuring out what I'm going to use because one of the common mistakes I see is jumping onto an antipyritic but not controlling the infection and then all of a sudden it appears that that pet's not really responding and it's more because of the infection than it not being a good allergy treatment. Mm -hmm. But there are cases that, you know, sometimes we still use cyclosporin for sure. There are cases that still respond better to that therapy, but it can take a little bit longer to work. And then steroids, depending on the severity and inflammation of that pet, or if they have, say, just really stenotic edematous swollen ear canals, then we probably are reaching for steroids temporarily in those patients. But once we have them under control, we really try our best to see if there are alternative therapies that can be used. And in a perfect world for atopic pet, we are in the background trying to do things like allergy testing and desensitization more for that long-term plan of seeing if we can, you know, prevent us being on so many drugs the rest of that pet's life because allergies are something we deal with lifelong in that pet. Um, so that's like a really long uh, answer that's not super specific, but those are like the more common things we use. And it really comes down to that particular pet and, you know, their history and the severity of what we're dealing with. Okay. Well, for some of your pets that you're using <clears throat> either Cytopoint or Atopical, what are kind of your go-to starting points for dosages on those? 
Yeah, so Cytopoint is quite easy because it really goes about by every 10 pounds. So you can find charts for Cytopoint and Apoquil provided by the company that really give you exactly what you should be using in those cases. Um, in general, um, it goes about by every 10 pounds. So if it's 10 pounds and under, you'll use a 10 milligram vial. If it's 10 to 20 pounds, you'll use a 20 milligram vial. That's kind of the quick and easy way to remember it. And it can last anywhere from four to eight weeks, depending on the pet. And sometimes um, you can see subsequent improvement up to three injections given consistently. So if I have a pet who say, um, maybe they had a 70% response as far as their paritis level to Cytopoint, they might have an even better response if we continue using it. So that's the nice thing about that. Um, it's also very easy for the owners because they don't have to give it at home. We just give it in the clinic. Uh, Apoquil, again, there is a dosing chart that the company provides that you can use based on the weight of the dog. Um, but kind of the dosing range that's more typical is 0.4 to 0.6 mg per kg. And an induction dose is up to twice, uh, up to 14 days doing twice daily. I don't do that for every pet. You can just do it up to 14 days. And then at that point, you drop it to once daily. So if I have a pet that's, you know, moderately paritic and I don't feel like they really need the induction dose for 14 days, I might only do it for seven days. If it's a dog, I'm just getting off steroids because they did have a really stenotic ear canal and they're not that itchy, but we're trying to get off steroids. I might not do twice daily at all. I might just start them at once daily. So that's the really nice thing is as the doctor, you kind of get to decide and make the decision on that particular case, what's really needed. Um, Atopica, if we reach for that particular medication, the dose is five to 10 mg per kg daily. And then steroids, really depends on if we're going for anti-inflammatory, um, You might we might use 0.5 to 1 mg per kg daily and then taper down. If we have a really bad uh, case of a stenotic ear, we might even go into more of the immunosuppressive doses of 1 to 2 mg per kg daily and then taper down. Excellent. Gotcha. Yeah, I always like to ask because sometimes depending on the specialty in the field of practice, people go off label for all sorts of things, especially with like psychopharmaceuticals when we're dealing with behavior. A lot of the behavior vets always tell me like what they do versus what's actually scribed on the package or what it's written for. So thank you for that. Mm -hmm. um, and when it comes to diagnosing some of these different things, whether it's allergies or whether it's a specific skin condition, do you notice any common mistakes that you see pr practitioners kind of jumping to conclusions or anything that's kind of common to say, hey, wait a minute, you might want to think about that a second time? Yeah, so one, the biggest one is definitely what I was mentioning earlier of not identifying flare factors. So just prescribing a medication but not doing cytology um, or just prescribing a medication and not making sure that pet's on really good flea control. Um, did they, are they food allergic pet and they, you know, they're giving the pills in Turkey that we didn't ask about. So the simple flare factors you want to control what I always tell practitioners is you don't want to give up on a really good foundational medication for a pet because just something simple like a flare happened. I mean, even in my hands, most of my well-controlled allergy patients at some point have a flare. Like that's just the nature of dealing with a chronic disease. You know, they could do great. They could do great. They could do great. We hit spring and it's just a bad time of year for them. Say they've been on Apoquil the entire time and they've done great nine months and then all of a sudden we have a flare in spring. I'm not just like throwing my hands up and giving up on that medication. I'm going to control the flare, whatever reason that is, infection, 
maybe we just know spring we need something else additional to the Apoquil and then we can get off of it once we get past that season. Um, I really don't want to give up on a med if I could control just a flare factor. So I would say infection and, and controlling things by asking owners simple questions in the history, which you can have your, you know, technicians, your CSRs, your assistants also kind of inquire about those more common things too. Um, that's probably one of the biggest things, um, not doing cytology. I mean, that's why I'm such an advocate for doing it because you can pick up on things that are simple, you know, infections that we can treat and make that pet feel a lot better. Or you may do a cytology on a pet that's crusty and see something that looks really weird and there's no infection and maybe it's acanthalytic keratinocytes for a pemphigus dog and this isn't allergic at all. What I always tell, uh, uh, veterinarians is if you do a cytology and you're not finding infection and something's weird biopsy it like you know just like do another diagnostic because maybe you're not dealing with allergies at all I have had lymphoma cases come into me being treated for allergies oh, wow. I'll do a cytology and say that's weird oh. like that's that's not normal so let's biopsy and then it'll come back as something like epitheliotropic lymphoma so that's why using our diagnostics are so important we only have so many diagnostics in dermatology right like we cytology everything you know you have your dtm cultures and your bacterial cultures um and then you can skin scrape right there's definitely things we do and then you can biopsy like those are 95 percent of what i can do for a pet and of course there's videotoscopy and all those other things, but just use those simple tools. Like do not forget a skin scrape. If something's just not work, like if they're not responding, it's okay to get a negative skin scrape. I think sometimes people feel bad if they get a negative result on something that they charge the client for that, but that's okay. Like that's still a piece of information we have. I skin scrape cases that come back negative all the time. But if you do find a positive and you were so worried to skin scrape that patient, you miss something like Demodex, especially right mm. now when the, the treatment's very simple. There's tons of fleet control that can, can take care of that. You know, we've missed something super simple for that pet. So just do not be afraid to use the diagnostics that we have in dermatology to figure out these cases. Yeah, I, I agree with you on being concerned about finding negative results, but that's what you're doing in veterinary medicine as it is. You're deducing, you're doing everything you can to basically rule everything out and find out kind of what that last man standing is as far as what's causing, what's going on in your patients. But I think um, <clears throat> there's kind of a psychological aspect to that to where a lot of primary care veterinarians feel under fire as it is with people, you know, making statements like, oh, this is so expensive and you charge me for all these different things and not having a good grasp on what things actually cost, especially for private practitioners. So I almost feel like there's this kind of back and forth um, tug of war that some of them experience to where they're like, I want to do this. I want to do these diagnostics to rule these things out. But you know, which ones should I focus on because this client is going to be up my hindquarters about how much this is going to cost them, right? So I think some of it is just being able to be open and having those conversations with clients to let them know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure this out for you. And in order to figure this out for you, there's a series of tests that I need to do to really know what's going on. I don't want to miss something. And if we miss one of these tests, then we could potentially miss something and you're going to end up spending more money in the long run as it is. So I think a lot of open dialogue could help with that because I see, I see people just being hesitant due to this idea that veterinarians are out to out to steal all your money with all of the diagnostics that they run rather than actually what you're there for which is to figure out the problem and treat it 
Yeah. Oh, I totally agree. And in another big passion I have is client communication and that is training your staff. I know we're all busy right now. I get it. Um, and even in general practice, they're seeing cases faster than even I am because I block off the time to have these long allergy conversations. And I get that that can't happen all with it, all the time. But that's where having handouts, um, training your, your staff to be able to communicate with these cases can be really important. So I have lots of clients who come in and they just will start saying things like they always do cytology and it's just like a waste of money and they always find the same thing. And I'll just take like two minutes and explain why it's important. Like I need to repeat a cytology too. Here's why. Um, you know, here's examples of other cases where it's always looked like the same thing, and then all of a sudden we sample and it's not. And don't forget about the power of the recheck cytology. So, yeah, I suspect we're going to find bacteria in your pet's ear. But I have to know, is it circular bacteria? Is it rod-shaped bacteria? Is there a lot of inflammatory cells? So we should use something with a topical steroid in it. Um, what quantity of infection is there? Because when I have you come back in three to four weeks to check your re recheck cytology, if it's not all gone, but I can see that it's gotten 70% improvement in the quantity, we might be on the right track and we just need more time versus the quantity hasn't changed at all. So just explaining those simple reasons of why these diagnostics are important, especially in dermatology where we are repeating diagnostics a lot, can be really helpful to get your clients to understand why they're necessary. Yeah, I like that a lot. Um, and I, I feel like you can't over communicate and there's a lot of people that just want to understand why you're wanting to do what you want to do. And I mean, I'm even a big proponent and, and some vets are going to be like, eesh, when I say this, because you don't really don't have a lot of time. Everybody's busy, but actually showing them, like walking them back to the microscope and be like, take a look at this. You see these little, these little like snowman looking things in here, that's yeast. And let me explain what that means and why. And even having, like you said, those rechecks where they come back and now you take them back and you walk them, you like, see, no more snowmen, right? So they can actually physically see it and understand what's going on. Now, obviously that's client to client and they don't all necessarily need that, but what a difference it makes to just say, this is why I'm doing these things and I'm, I'm involving you as an owner who's very concerned about their pet in what's going on. So you have some ownership in this too and you can understand why I'm making the decisions for you that I'm currently making. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so many different ways you can do that. I mean, I do that a lot with like video otoscopies. We take pictures of things and if people are going to spend thousands of dollars for us to do an anesthetic procedure and, you know, maybe middle ear cultures or removing masses and sending them out. I really like to send them pictures of the otoscopy and just say, here's the before, here's the after. And there's lots of different tools you can find even online. If, if people can't have, you know, a whole video otoscopy unit, there's like even just cameras that you can hook up like to your phone and put on things like, you know, your handheld otoscopes. Uh, there are little, um, like aligning, uh, tools you can find even to take pictures of your cytology through the eyepiece with your phone or a clinic camera. Mm. So there's lots of ways that you can have that visualization for your clients. And it really does make them understand a little bit better, you know, what you're looking for and why you're doing it. Yeah. I think that's really helpful for sure. Um, so any other further tips about client communication? I mean, you mentioned handouts, but I like that you touched mm -hmm. on kind of training your staff again with time and everything else. But, um, what do you guys do in house to really keep your, your technicians and your nurses current so that you can utilize them as much as possible to explain some things and give you more time for that diagnosing and more, more things that the, 
the board certified and DBM come with rather than kind of the nursing and technician duties? Like how much information do you give them to help with clients? Oh, our technicians, I mean, they're wonderful. <laughs> I mean, when we have them start with us as we're hiring new people and expanding, we have a lot of times the technicians start by shadowing us. And, and just from the communication standpoint, what does an allergy test mean? What does a flare look like? You know, why is it important that if someone calls in and we haven't seen them for, say, six months and their pet's itchy, how do we communicate with the owner the importance of a recheck because of things like infection? Um, we have them really spend time with us and listen to us talk to clients and listen to our, you know, more senior staff talk to clients so that they can understand that. Our company provides some scripts. There's resources online you can find of just simple things. Even your CSRs can say if a client calls in because they're the first person they often talk mm -hmm. to. And if they're frustrated because there's another ear infection, giving them kind of the knowledge to talk through yes, it's been a terrible spring. Our pollens have been really high. We've had lots of clients calling in. I'm worried there's an infection. Let's get you in to see the doctor. Um, you can actually train them to field a lot of those questions. And honestly, even if they don't have a ton of knowledge as they're starting, just kind of training your staff to understand and empathize with the owner. Like if they have an allergic dog themselves or they have a friend who has an allergic dog and realizes how frustrating it truly is. We can't do one surgery, have a recovery period, and then they're done with their allergies. Like we're managing them for life. So sometimes it doesn't even come down to the knowledge. It's truly how you handle your tone, how you handle empathizing with that client. And I also always tell my uh, staff, it's okay to say, I don't know. Like if they ask a particular question and it's a therapy, they don't particularly know the answer to like just saying, that's a great question. Let me get, you know, let me go chat with the doctor and I'll give you a call back and we'll make sure you have a good plan for them. Simple things like saying, I know this is frustrating. It's okay um, that, you know, this is a hard time for Fluffy. Let's get ahead of it. So really just having them learn the basics by listening to your conversations with owners when they start out or just treat, teaching them how to empathize with owners and kind of that philosophy of I might not know, but I will go find out for you. And then also emphasizing the importance of the recheck and why we need to get the doctor's eyes on this so we can get them feeling better faster. That's great. I mean, everybody wants to have knowledgeable technicians and nurses, but honestly, I, I put empathy above your knowledge. Like mm -hmm. you can, you can learn the book smarts and you can follow and shadow and learn the terminology and how to um, express the information that the clients need. But empathy trumps all of that. Some people just want to be heard and want to know that they can trust all of your staff with their pet and that you all have the best interest for them. Yeah, that's huge. That's a really good point to bring up. So one of the questions I want to ask you is um, when you think it's appropriate to refer out to someone like you, now, obviously, if you hit one of those stone walls where you're like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, it's a good point to, to kind of refer out. But when it comes to deciding when to let a client know, hey, we've tried this, we've done a couple of things, we can continue trying all these other things, or we can refer out. When do you think that line really is? I love this question because I think that the line looks different for every client, but some main things that I always kind of emphasize, one, one of the scariest things we deal with in dermatology are infections becoming very resistant. So when you start to either have an infection that's non-responsive to the therapies that you're utilizing, or if recurrent infections start happening very frequently, we're not just a dog who gets an ear infection once in the spring, we're a dog getting an ear infection every other month. 
then I think referral can be really good, not only to make sure we're getting through that infection, but what do we need to do to figure out the underlying reason so that it can stop happening? Because Pseudomonas, methicillin-resistant staph are all really scary things that we're just seeing get worse and worse. Mm. Um, so recurrent infections are a big one. Um, not responsive to treatment. So if you have a pet who's not responding to, you know, the treatments you feel comfortable with, whether that's their pruritus isn't responding to the treatment or if their lesions aren't responding to the treatment because maybe it's not an allergy dog. You know, maybe it is a dog with pemphigus or a dog with lymphoma. Um, and, you know, biopsies or general practitioners absolutely can biopsy appropriately, but you want to make sure that you're confident in how you're biopsying. You're taking multiple sites. Um, you know what type of lesions to grab because it always breaks my heart if I have a case come in and then maybe like one little spot's been biopsy. It was inconclusive, but I really think we need to biopsy that pet. And then I have to tell the owners we we need to redo that, you know, that big procedure. Um, so certainly lesions that aren't responding and depending on your comfort level on further working that up. Um, and then one of my favorite proactive owners. Oh, yes. So owner, I don't need to see train wrecks all day. Like <laughs> I am totally fine seeing that two-year-old lab that's responding wonderfully to, a, you know, Cytopoint or Apoquil, but the owners are just really interested in desensitization for long-term, you know, control of that pet and seeing what we can accomplish to keep them under control or maybe less than medications. Favorite type of patient to yes. walk in. They're looking good, but they owners just know they want to do something long-term because maybe you have a handout explaining it or you just, you know, briefly touch on it and they're all in. So we do not just have to see the complete disasters. In fact, I could use a couple breaks in my day <laughs> to see some cases that aren't so bad and just really want to get on that long-term, you know, treatment plan. So those are kind of the main things I start to think about. If you start seeing cases that have like a lot of mucocutaneous disease or nodules, um, you know, more than likely you're not dealing with allergies. So the really bizarre things, we have a better chance at getting ahead of those. And that's another probably good time to refer. Gotcha. Do you guys ever do vet to vet consults on specific things? I mean, um, not necessarily just diagnostically, but say, for example, you know, you have a recent grad that's in private practice and... Um, <clears throat> you know, wants to make sure that they're getting adequate samples, they're doing their punch biopsies appropriately, and they're using the right sizes um, for send-off. Do you do um, any veterinary to veterinary consults for things like that? Yeah, I mean, I definitely, especially with our local vets, they'll call us with the wait list right now being so long too, with just all of veterinary medicine being crazy. Yeah. We have vets who call us and say, you know, what do I do till I can get them to you? Or referral's not an option. Can you give me some advice on this? But that's exactly why I also put all the stuff with the derm vet out there is I know not everyone has a dermatologist in their area. I mean, I think there's like maybe somewhere in the three hundreds of us yeah. um, spread out, you know, that's not, and we have multiple people in certain areas. Like we have quite a few in Portland. So that's exactly why I put that information out there is just so you can read a post about how do I do a nasal planum biopsy or how do I maximize those results? But dermatology, I will say like, I, I know I'm super biased, but I think our specialty are some of the more passionate giving, 
you know, very nerdy about <laughs> our particular um, space in the veterinary field. So most dermatologists I know are going to be super, super, um, you know, willing to help if you can't necessarily get them into our doors. That's good to know. Perfect. So if you get an influx of consults asking, you'll know why they're listening in and they need help. <laughs> they need derm help. Go to the Facebook and the Instagram page first. Trust me, you'll find a lot of good information there. Um, do you have favorite labs that you send out to? I mean, I know there's a handful of labs that we use. You know, Colorado State's a big one, but what are your kind of go-to laboratories that you like to send your biopsies out to? Yeah, so we actually, within our company, um, so my clinic in Portland is actually connected to a overall company, Animal Dermatology Clinic, that has clinics throughout the country, and we actually have a couple international in Australia and New Zealand as well. We have a histopathology service, so there's actually uh, one of our um, dermatology residents is a pathologist, which is very cool. Excellent. And then one of our dermatologists has been reading pathology for several years. So we use a lot of, um, we use their services, which they're in a service available to everyone. Um, but yeah, I've also sent samples out historically to UC Davis. Um, you know, Phoenix, which is now part of Zoetis Laboratory, has some good histopathology. Um, there's lots of really good histopathologists out there. My biggest recommendation, honestly, is to make sure you use a dermatohistopathologist. So there are certain pathologists where you'll, you can ask or you know their services are targeted towards dermatologic disease because the skin is very bizarre. It can have a lot of different inflammatory patterns. Um, you can get these rare autoimmune diseases that pop up in very, very quiet ways. And you want to have someone that really specializes in dermatohistopathology reading those slides. So universities like, you know, Davis, um, Cornell, um, they Penn, they'll have people that are double boarded and things like Path and Derm. So there's lots of great options out there. I would just make sure you find someone who has a specific interest in dermatopathology. Gotcha. So if you find that, I mean, within the, the laboratories that are out there, um, is there any difference as far as sending specific samples to one over the other? Um, no, honestly, they're, they're all really great. You can ask their particular protocol and how they like things written out. One thing I do know from talking to dermatohistopathologists is history is really helpful for them. Yeah. You know, knowing things like the breed, knowing things like what the lesions looked like, where those lesions are, where did we collect them from? Um, that can be really beneficial so that when they're putting together what they're seeing clinically, if they don't know simple things like, how old the dog is, what breed is it, where were the lesions, how long has this been going on, was this really acute, was this really something that's been very chronic, those can be super helpful just so once they look at the slide and they see the presentation based on what you're writing, other things might come to mind they need to search for in that sample. So focusing on really good detailed histories, maybe including photographs, things like that would be helpful. Yeah, I know a lot of pathologists who really enjoy having photographs. Um, some of them, what I know they'll do is they'll look at the slide blindly first just to kind of get an idea of what they're looking for. And then they'll kind of go back and look at the history and the pictures. And just like me as a clinical dermatologist, they're going to put that puzzle piece together. You know, what did I see on the slide? What was the history of the patient? What does it look like? And sometimes having all that information can actually influence your official diagnosis. Yeah. Well, and it's interesting you talk about like listing the breed of the dog and the age of the dog and things like that too. Um, 
So are there any particular things that you think of when you see a specific breed coming into the clinic and you're like, ah, I see this a lot and you can't use bulldogs because that's a softball. We're not allowed to use any bulldogs, Uh, (laughs) but anything that you see particularly common in, um, various breeds that you're like, ah, okay. I know where I'm going to go first at least. Oh, I mean, so many, I couldn't, (laughs) I couldn't even like list off of them. Um, you know, if we're just talking allergies, you know, yeah, of course, bulldogs, but a lot of the brachycephalics, I mean, French bulldogs, we see Boston Terriers, we see tons of labs, we see tons of like golden doodles, poodle mixes, um, poor German shepherds, <laughs> they just really like to get anything and be very bizarre about how they present. So, you know, we see a lot of allergic German shepherds, but we also see weird manifestations of their pyoderma. They get really inflammatory, um, really crusty. It can happen very quickly. They can be hard to get under control. Um, If I see a German shepherd with issues on the rear, perianal fistulas is predominantly seen in German shepherds. They can get metatarsal fistulas. Hmm. They're just unfortunately predisposed to have a lot of issues, not just with the skin. Um, you know, there's certain things like a young crusty cat, I'm going to want to rule out something like dermatophyte, you know, first and foremost. If I see a young pit, red pit bull come into me, I'm definitely going to want to rule out something like Demodex um, in infection. So there's lots of various things that we can see and knowing the distribution in the common breeds like Jack Russell Terriers like to get trichophyton, which is a form of dermatophyte. Um, All those things definitely can be important when we're seeing them in the clinic, just so we can focus some of our diagnostics if if we're able to for that client. Yeah, I always find it so interesting with just the ways that we've bred dogs over the centuries to find out kind of what else we've done to them, not just phenotypically, but genotypically as well. And it's funny you mentioned the pit bulls because I always think about you know, the blue mutation always having some sort of skin issue related as well. Yeah, Mm -hmm. they do dilute dogs. They're not, not necessarily meant to be dilute. So they're dilute for a reason. And so unfortunately we can see color dilution alopecia because it's like we diluted them and all, all their little pigmented cells in their hair, you know, their hair strands are like, Hey, this wasn't exactly the way this was supposed to go. So you're right. It's really interesting. You're going to be angry about it. Yeah. Yeah, I'm going to make you lose all your hair. That's right. <clears throat> well, um, this has been super informative. Thank you so much for all of this information. And I don't want to leave people hanging because I think dermatology is really so interesting. So for anybody that's listening that is like, ooh, this is a good taste of something that I want to get into, um, you've got the podcast. And obviously, we talked about your Instagram and Facebook page, how informative they are. But as far as any upcoming continuing education that you're a huge proponent of or anything that your clinics are offering, what are some educational resources for either technicians or anyone in the veterinary field, really, um, that they can kind of dive deep into to get a more well-rounded education on dermatology in general? Yes, there's so many opportunities. There's so many great things that even free resources that a lot of companies put out, you know, specifically for um, technicians or assistants who might be interested in something like dermatology. There's a free CE course that Zoetis puts on at, I believe it's ce.navta, N-A-V-T-A dot net. If I remember correctly, they have a whole free course that's, you know, race approved um, for technicians. That can be great. Lots of, uh, you know, webinars get put out that are really helpful. Of course, there's going to be a lot of dermatology education at the conferences. You know, 
fingers crossed now that we're going back to some in-person things. You know, I'm personally going to be at, you know, Fetch Kansas City in August and Western in September, but there's lots of other great dermatologists speaking as well. Um, you know, talk to your reps, honestly, like Siva, Decra, Zoetis, the food companies, Royal Canaan, they all put out really great webinars and CE, and a lot of them are free. So you can ask them about the resources that they put out. Um, but those are some really good ones I find informative. You know, the, the DermVet podcast is really just meant to be little like things you can grab onto. I try to mix in not only short episodes that I kind of explain things, but I interview other dermatologists because I'm, I'm super adamant. I am not the only one to like do things a certain way. Like there are lots of ways to do things just because I do something a certain way. Like I don't tape doesn't mean tapes wrong. So I love having other people on so people can just see that we have different ways of doing things. We have different ways of managing cases. That's the beautiful thing about medicine is that it's not cookie cutter. Um, so those are all kind of like different areas that you can kind of find what you learn best from and then enhance your dermatology skills. That's perfect. I think that's really helpful. It's a good start to kind of get their feet wet if they haven't explored dermatology prior. And I I love that you're talking about it not being cookie cutter because um, oftentimes it feels very much that way with different policies and procedures. And it's okay to know that it is not one specific way. Um, I've run across a lot of technicians that are like, I was taught this way. It has to be this way. And it's like, relax. No, there are many different ways to do it. It's not all wrong. It's not all right very much personal preference and what works. And to your point that you made earlier, practice, 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 practice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I talk about this in behavior all the time. Use it when you don't need it so that when you do need it, it's nothing. It's ready to go. It's easy. Yep. You've got what you need and you're well-practiced and well-versed at it. It's so true. It, it's, no, it's no different than anything else, right? Like people are like, well, how do you get that cytology? I'm like, well, practice on a dog who's anesthetized. Just be, even if they don't need it, like it's not harmful. You know, slides are... you often free if not like super inexpensive like get good at the still pet first before you get all worried that you can't get that clawfold cytology on the frenchie that's like jumping up and you just want them to like sit there and breathe <laughs> you know it's you don't you don't run into the super bowl never have practice like a football game before so you just want to make sure you're and i think that's true for any form of medicine right like diagnostics, how you talk to people, like just start out easy and it will come and it will be, you'll make it way much more fun if you get that practice in. I feel like except for emergency, emergency is that one field where they're like, okay, we taught you how to do this. Go. (laughs) Like, ah, okay. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Flashbacks to my internship right there. Right. (laughs) The only, only part of the practice where I'm like, they're just going to throw you to the wolves and you're going to learn as you go. So, well, Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, thank you so very much for this information. It's been incredibly helpful and I am going to go ahead and post the links that you were talking about, not just to your podcast and Instagram and Facebook page, but um, also to the CE um, links that you were talking about as well. So people can access those directly from there and uh, feel free to keep an eye on the incoming comments or questions as I probably will not be able to answer them the way that you would be able to. So, um, but if anybody does have any questions or comments, feel free to post them below uh, either the podcast podcast or if you're watching this on YouTube, you can post it there as well. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate you. Oh, thank you so much for having me.